On this bonus comment section edition of Download, we've got questions, comments, and feedback from listeners and the media, information about Harry Knowles' one and only feature film credit as a producer, plus an interview with the writer who wrote about the rise and fall of Marvel Comics creator Stan Lee. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Hey everyone, welcome to Downloads Comments section. My name is Joe Scott, the creator of Download, and with me as always on these comments episodes is Christina Bell. How's it going, Christina? I'm doing great. I hope you are too. I am. You know, I want to welcome all of the new listeners who've started jumping on our show this week. We saw a really big spike, and I just want to let you guys know uh, we appreciate you checking us out. Uh, Hope you like the show, and um, yeah, just thanks. It's yeah. been it's been cool to see the response this week, you know. And and before we jump into the mailbag, let's uh dive into a little bit of news. Uh, so we kind of had a little bit of a big news week in a lot of ways. There's some ways I, I can't talk about, but one crazy thing that happened this week was that uh, Slate ran an article uh, celebrating the 20th anniversary of Harry Knowles' Blade Two review. This article was written by Jason Bailey, and in his article, he actually touched on our podcast. And, you know, it was, I had an interesting experience with Jason Bailey. Um, when our show first dropped a couple of months ago, uh, he was on Twitter kind of, you know, not saying nice things. He was trashing it a little bit. He was telling people not to listen to it. You know, and I tried to take all of that in stride. He's made a lot of podcasts. This was my very first podcast. So obviously, we're probably not going to be his favorite podcast right out of the gate, but you know, um, and I actually like his podcast. I still like it. It's really good. But um, this week I got a bunch of messages on, on uh, Twitter and in my email box saying, Hey, Jason Bailey wrote this article about Harry Knowles blade review and he rips off all the information from your show <laughs> and he trashes your podcast. And I don't I think like, he trashed it. I, I think you're right. I agree. You know, he kind of a little bit of a light disc throws a little bit of shade, but he said that one part, I think it was, he said something about how it was a credible explanation of something, right? Remember? uh, Yeah. Of the way they they command the fanboy audiences to go see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A little, a a little bit of criticism, but then a compliment. I will take it a hundred percent. Yeah. Me as well. You know, and I think what was interesting though, was a precursor to this was, I think after our third or fourth episode dropped he uh, put this post on twitter basically sort of flouncing like he was like leaving our show he's like i'm done listening to this i'm tapping out and he was telling other people to stop listening to it as well and you know that's interesting to me because when i was a kid there was this kid in our neighborhood who was was a little high maintenance and uh you know he was always threatening to run away and then he like he's like I'm running away, and then he ran away, and then we would just keep playing, and then we would watch, and he'd be sneaking and trying to come back, <laughs> and you know he announced that he was not listening to our show anymore, and he was telling people not to listen to our show, and he was saying that he doesn't listen to our show, but when you read his article, it's very clear that he did listen to our show. Yeah, that he did, you know, lift some beats, some information. 
you know, and none of this stuff is proprietary. I don't own it. Uh, that's certainly true, but I just feel like you should at least say, Hey, I do listen to the show. I hate it. It's awful. No one else should listen to it, but I listen to it. I feel like that would be, uh, the most honest thing to say. I don't know. It's a perplexing reaction. You know, when you say you hate something, but it's like, you hate, listen to it. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't understand that. Maybe it's because this, this show, maybe it makes some people uncomfortable because we call people out for certain behaviors and we're digging up, you know, painful memories and things. I don't know. Maybe that's causing this like emotional response. Um, But you know, these things need to be said, right? They need to be heard. Well, you know, I feel like when I came up watching movies, there was sort of the idea of the hate watch where you watch movies you hate, you know, and they would include movies there, you know, another way to refer to these was guilt, Guilty pleasures, you know, and, and a great example of this is the movie Roadhouse. We're like, man, I just hate watch that movie all the time. And then the realization hit me. It's like, I'm not hate watching this. I like to watch this. There's a reason yeah. I want to watch Roadhouse. It's because I like it. It's absurd. There are parts that I find to be really stupid and poorly made, but um, other parts are very compelling and odd. And I think it says something about the psychosexual condition that we all live in as human beings in some ways, which sounds crazy. I know, but just watch the movie again and think about it through a, through a, a lens of sort of gender theory. Anyways, you know, maybe that's true about this show. And, you know, we're kind of like the roadhouse of narrative. No, podcasts. I wouldn't say we're like this lowbrow show or I, I don't know. I mean, and, and that's fine if people disagree with me, but I do think that we are um, challenging certain perspectives and points. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and that's good. I don't think we're just all fluff and shock and, you know, I think we're, we dig a little deeper than that, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting what, what it's, it's, it's this, idea that people like watching certain types of media but they don't want to admit it so they claim that it's hate watching that's sort of this interesting positioning that happens and i kind of want to do a study about it now but (laughs) that's for another time that's for another time but you know the irony is that for the guy who was telling people not to listen to her podcast yeah when when his article hit like he gave us a shout out that's great it did you know and so i'm really grateful and there was a huge surge we got a lot of listens because of the article so so thanks jason bailey yeah thanks thanks genuinely yeah i'm glad you listened yeah you know the only feedback i have is that you know we were accused of mythologizing harry Mm -hmm. Knowles, and i've never seen a real example cited but no i'm I'm open to hearing that you know mythologizing is kind of a vague word in the dictionary sense you know it's just sort of making people think about something which i feel like jason bailey's article does that as well yeah i yeah i don't know maybe it's this notion that he feels that we are giving him more credit than he deserves which you know might be a fair criticism but i i think the perception at the time is that he did have a big impact. And I think you have enough examples to back that he definitely impacted Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe other people feel that's more of a drop in the bucket. I don't know. What do you think? I I think that it's a strange story. And and that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I found it so compelling is here's a website made in the spare bedroom of this guy's house that, that had Hollywood on its knees for about five to six years. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why I'm telling the story. And I think that's honestly why Jason uh, retold the story on Slate. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's worth talking about, you know. And, and so it was weird. It was validation from the place you expected it the least. So yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. For you sure. Know? So uh, cool. All right. You ready to get into the mailbag? Let's do it. All right. Okay. So this next one is from Kevin Williams. And Kevin writes, okay, so here's my question for the next comment section. In previous episodes, you had hinted at and given the listeners some short examples of Harry Harry's juvenile and unprofessional writing style. Can you talk about the decision to include readings from the infamous Blade 2 and Heroes reviews halfway through the series as opposed to earlier? That's a good question. So why save it for the middle? Why not shock them from the beginning? You know, I, I was very intrigued by sort of this origin story, not only of Harry Knowles, but of internet movie geek culture mm-hmm. and of the site. And I feel like, you know, as we kind of seen this week with the Jason Bailey piece, once you talk about the blade two of it all, everything else kind of gets muted, mm-hmm. you know, it's, not to not to be too gross here, but it, it would be like uh, starting the movie Deliverance during its most infamous scene, as opposed to working your way to there. This is sort of a haunted house of our culture that we are all living in right now. And I just think that it's important to line people up first and start the ride and then get to where the monstrous boogity man pops up. The other thing I'll say, too, is that by starting with Blade 2 and focusing on Blade 2, you do one thing that I don't want to do, which is to let everyone else off the hook. Yeah. This includes the people who collaborated at Ain't It Cool News. This includes the people who visited Ain't It Cool News. This includes me. This includes everyone. I don't want to let anyone off the hook. That's. I think that's the one thing that we'll be focusing on here through the rest of the show is how it's convenient to have a Harry Knowles who wrote a Blade 2 review. It's less convenient and less comforting to look at yourself and wonder what you did to contribute to that. So um, that's the answer. And I'd like to add, um, I mean, if Harry's first post was Blade 2, who knows what would have happened with the site? You know, this isn't what drew people in to the site. Right. So I think it's good to kind of start at the beginning. Why were people drawn to him? Why were they drawn to his writing style? And they were already kind of used to him and who he was by yeah. the time this came out. So it was less shocking to them than if this was what they were given right off the bat. Right. So yeah. I think that's also why it's it needs to come later. Kind of the metaphor of how you boil a frog. And I don't know who created Ew. this metaphor. Who's out there boiling frogs? But, you know, they say if you put a frog in boiling water, it jumps out. If you put Mm -hmm. a frog in cold water and then turn on the heat and it heats up over time, they just kind of sit and get boiled. And I think that that approach is is kind of the approach that Harry took. He didn't just start out Blade 2 reviews out the gate. Right. You know, he he worked his way up there. And and you could say that, you know, he had this review in him the whole time. You could also (laughs) make an argument that, you know... As he got a bigger, greater, inflated version of himself in his mind, that that is what sort of brought this out, sort of through a mutated consciousness and a, and a warped concept of what is okay to put in print, you know, in terms of film discourse. So, yeah. I think that's a great point. 
All right, our next letter is from Jonathan who writes, Hello, loving the show. You're doing a really great job. Oh, thanks. I know. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, he, he says more, though. He says, I'm about the same age as you and started visiting Ain't It Cool News in the late 90s and checked near daily for about 10 years. I often miss the non-toxic part of the community and all the fun in-jokes and the reoccurring gags on the site. One of my favorites uh, were th- was the joke reviews done in the style of screener reviews. I recall a particularly funny one when someone did a screener review of the upcoming Super Bowl. They talked about how they don't want to completely spoil the ending, but there was a big score change after the third act and how the screener copy, copy they viewed didn't have finished special effects like the 10 yard line hadn't been digitally added in yet. So if I had any questions, it would be, what do you miss about visiting the site regularly? Well, thanks for sharing that story. And Joe, you have a personal connection to that site. So yeah. What do you, what do you miss? Um, you know, when I first read this question, I thought nothing, but then I thought about it more. And the, the one thing I miss is Alexandra DuPont. I always mm-hmm. miss her views. And, you know, uh, one person had a remark about how we're praising all these quote unquote terrible writers, but uh, Alexandra DuPont was a great writer. And if you think everyone who worked for Ain't It Cool News was a terrible writer, that's because you didn't read. Uh, you know, and it's easy to just say everything's terrible. It's easy to get lost in the blade to it all and say that it was all like this. It wasn't. There were great writers. Alexandra DuPont was my favorite. Great. Our next question is from uh, the editor for Empire Magazine, Nick DeSimilin. Did I say that right? I think you did. Okay, great. Um, if, if not, Nick, please correct me. Yeah. Um, so uh, he wrote, enjoy and download the podcast documentary about the rise and fall of Ain't It Cool News. But five episodes in, I believe they're still yet to mention that the name of the website was inspired by a Travolta line in Broken Arrow. I remember that film. Yeah, I did too. We, we touched on that in episode two. And, mm-hmm. uh, but thanks for listening, uh, Nick. You know, matter of fact, I really enjoyed Empire Magazine a lot. And uh, uh, it's one of my favorite publications uh, from when I used to read a lot of physical media. And uh, I also love a lot of the podcasts you guys put out. So mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Yep. Um, our next question is from James Lawrence. Love how it's a mid-season finale, like something of vast greatness and importance. (laughs) The dude is riding the wave, and I'm all for it. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That might have been a dig, but... uh... I think it's a celebratory dig. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think it's a celebratory... Like, I think he's like, yeah, this is kind of weird, but yeah, you do it. You do you. I'm in it. You know? Like, you're in it to write it, and I appreciate that. (laughs) The only thing I'll say is that uh, as someone who works on the inside of this, Chris, uh, would you say it's... A wave or a river? A river. Definitely a river, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, and really, we paused the show not to celebrate some vast greatness or inflated sense of importance. I paused the show so that I wasn't being a shitbag leader to Chris <laughs> and Eddie, who work really hard to put this on, and, and they need the time to do it while also living their lives and working their jobs. And, you know, like I said it before, but I'll say it again. When we told the story of Ain't It Cool News and when it's over, you're going to hear a story about a, a company with a lot of labor abuse. And uh, it's something I've thought about a lot and I want to avoid it. I want, I really like working with Chris and Eddie. Yeah, we're a great team. Like, yeah. I, I, I like working with both of you too. And like, but yeah, we, we have a, 
schedule that works best for us. And unfortunately, I mean, I wish we could just like throw away our jobs and finish the podcast, but I mean, we can, and we love, we also love our jobs and we, we love our families and we have to kind of balance everything. Um, so that's how it goes, but I'm so excited that people are enjoying it and they're yeah. ready to hear the rest because, you know, I think we have a great second half of the season coming up yeah. and I, I think the show just gets better and better and better as we go. So, so For I hope sure. they agree. hundred percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thanks. Thanks again, James. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks, James. All right. This next one is from Jeff and he says, howdy, Joe, Christina, and the rest of the download crew. Just wanted to check in and thank y'all again for the great ongoing podcast. Also, I think episode six is one of the best episodes yet. Oh, I'll thanks. Pro- yeah, thanks. Um, I'll probably be able to quantify better after my second spin of it today. But for now, I think you did a great job on this episode of staying with the primary story and interweaving so much great interviews and detail. But non-structure for this one. He continues, also, I think you really provide a great balance of information and general picture of some of the main folks. One example is the fact that you included details around the Skywalker story and Cargill's take on it that paints a picture where there were moments of camaraderie. It doesn't change the destination we're heading for or the breakups that will occur, but it helps show history. The other example that I particularly appreciate is your delving into Drew. I think he did a great job both recognizing his talent and output for the community, but also acknowledged his sometimes very polarizing and abrasive nature. Two sides to a coin presented fairly. Enjoy a little bit of time away. I'm bummed that it'll be a bit till the new episodes and resolution, but I'm more stoked that you're doing this to take the time to process new info about the narrative. I'm finding and learning new stuff each episode and appreciate your work. Take care, team download. Stay safe. Wow, Jeff. that was a lovely, lovely compliment, yeah. and I'm I'm glad that he really. I, I thought those two particular anecdotes, you know, um, the character of Drew McWeeny, I thought he was a very interesting one, and of course, the Skywalker story was a fascinating one to me too. What, what yeah. do you think, Joe? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the one thing I'll say was that uh, I really am a huge fan of Drew's work as a writer. Mm-hmm. But if I ignored, you know, some of his personal truth, which he's actually been pretty candid about, he's come out and repackaged a lot of his Ain't It Cool News reviews as PDF files that you can buy online. And, um, you know, he sort of shares some anecdotes and, you know, the story about his rivalry with Tom Rothman um, while fighting for X-Men 3 to be a better movie uh, wasn't his best move. And and here's the thing, you know, X-Men 3 came out. It wasn't that great, but. Life goes on. I, I don't think anyone should have sacrificed their well-being for that film. You know, we, we've actually had plenty of awful X-Men movies after that. X-Men 3 is now not even the worst of the X-Men movies. They're, X-Men Apocalypse is way worse. But you just got to kind of... I, I, it was interesting just to, to see that. And I think the other reason that I focused on the anger is because I think that's a lesson we could all learn. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of anger on the internet. I feel like everyone's turned into like robots with knives for hands. And the, the only way they know how to interact with the world around them is to cut other people. And, uh, the shitty way to be. And, mm-hmm. you know, I hope as people read Drew's lesson that they don't make this mistake and thinking they're better than Drew. Uh, because I think if we let our anger take hold and, and sort of dominate the decisions we make, you could make a lot of the same mistakes that Drew did. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. I was recently told this quote. I think I shared it with you already, Joe, but it's um, it's about academia, but it's like something along the lines like uh, politics in academia is the most vicious form of politics because the stakes are so low. Yeah. And that really goes with this, like, it applies to this movie criticism, right? Like, yeah, the stakes for the X-Men movie, it's really low. It's a movie. They're going to make more X-Men movies. There's going to be other chances for this <laughs> yeah. movie to be good. You know, we're going to have a billion. It's also just a job for a lot of people that are just trying to make money and, like, buy food for their kid or whatever. But some people, they just, the stakes are low and they just get really wrapped up and bitter by it, Right. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's good to kind of keep perspective and ask yourself, why am I getting so upset about this? What are the stakes? And if it's not, if it's not a big deal, let it go. So. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and thank you, Chris. Yeah, that was a great <laughs> For quote, that Chris. life lesson. Yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. Um, our next, uh, comment is from John. And he writes, if you ever want to get an idea of the hubris, ego, and hypocrisy that calls all this shit, give the podcast download The Rise and Fall of Ain't It Cool News a listen. Ooh, it's juicy. And I think it's building towards something big. Oh, we are, John. We are. All right. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to shout us out. Awesome. <laughs> Our next one is from Greg Wyshynski, who's senior NHL writer at ESPN. Yeah. Um, when I saw this, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> he writes, uh, for those who don't know, the Ain't It Cool News podcast is a, a download pod project and my favorite hate listen since Serial. Once again, the hate listen, but also you hate listen Serial? I don't understand. But anyway, he writes, Serial's uh, a great podcast, but he writes, but I'm very much its target audience, having been very much online during the apex of movie rumor sites. My three favorite parts of the new Ain't It Cool News podcast episode are... The Mor Moriarty voice actor, he does do a great job. Yeah. Adam McKay completely downplaying Ain't It Cool News' role in Anchorman's success. Three, making an episode a two-part mid-season finale with Cliffhanger <laughs> being that the next one is about a comment section. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's and, fair. Then, and then he writes, another honorable mention the incredible wave of Ain't It Cool News' clones that rendered the site irrelevant, and then it's like two blocks. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, like uh, I think that that the voice actor that you got is amazing. Would you like to give him a, another shout-out? Jake Stewart, yeah. He, he actually also played Neil Cumston in the previous episode. And, yeah, he's a really good actor. He a comedian. He also uh, makes some cool online videos so mm -hmm. jake stewart awesome guy and i'm just thrilled that he put us in the same hate listen category as serial like that yeah. just totally made my day like <laughs> you know making that? a tv show and someone telling you they hate watch you and the wire like, i know you're yeah. like well well thank you <laughs> I, I, I love it i will take that although the wire is not for me but yes but still it's, it's a well done show it's just not my style yeah yeah, yeah. you know and, and the other thing i'll say is that uh yeah, you know, we, we did create a cliffhanger that uh, continues with the next episode focusing on a comment section. Um, I think that's kind of cool and absurd. We're, we're really uh, yeah kind of getting in the guts of, um, of narrative structures and, and what can constitute a narrative. And um, we're taking some real, uh, real experiments with this uh, comment section episode that we're putting out. Uh, well, I mean not 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 to mention this one but 
you know, yeah, we're doing some weird stuff on that. I can't wait to see what people think about it. And take my opinion with a grain of salt, because I've written a whole paper on a comment section of a, of a gaming site. But like, I, I just feel like that's where all the juiciness is, is in the in the talkbacks and the comics section, right? That's where all the drama happens. And you yeah. get more players and characters. And I don't know, it's just interesting. So yeah, so that the whole world has turned into a comment section. So sure, sure. Um, and then our next one is we have an audio clip. That is from Rod uh, Moreau, or is it Morrow? I think it's Morrow. Morrow. Okay, so we have a we have a, an audio clip from Rod Morrow, who's a staff writer for the HBO Max series Game Theory with Bamani Jones, and he's host of the Black Guy Who Tips podcast. Um, so, Joe, you want to play that for us? I've been listening to this podcast uh, called Download. It's spelled kind. Of, it's like D O download L O N L O W D, and it's about the rise and fall of um, Ain't It Cool News and the dude that ran it. It's a really great podcast. But one of the things they do is they do like a kind of feedback show every week. And what I liked and will try to emulate from that dude is when people kind of troll or was hating on his show, he was really able to like take it constructively or not at all and i thought that was such an empowering thing for him to be able to do i gotta say when i heard rod say this uh you know we've we've been doing these comment section episodes for a while you know after the second episode was released and i made it a point not to just put all the positive stuff out there you know i wanted to find the negatives and to you know share what people were really saying because i think if you don't, then it's fake as fuck. One. Two, I, I think that it's important to to hear that feedback. And it, I appreciated that he heard what we were doing and actually understood it. And, you know, more importantly, you know, his show, Game Theory with Bramani Jones, had just come out uh, before we put out this podcast. And so he was sort of talking about how he was dealing with the responses. Going from being sort of a content critic to a content producer and that shift. And, you know, I'm someone who spent a lot of time on forums and message boards and social media, sharing my opinions about media. Not all of it was positive. And so I think it's only fair that I give myself a dose of my own medicine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's and, fair, you know, and, and to be constructive about it when you can. I mean, sometimes we're like, I fucking hate you now die. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that, but uh, <laughs> thank you for listening. Yeah, no, I think criticism is so important. I mean, I really appreciate those that write in with constructive criticism. Like, I love hearing that. I think it's interesting. It challenges us to think about what we're doing and why, and it pushes us to maybe rethink our decisions. So I, 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 I you know, I think people that give us constructive criticism, they're coming from a place of care. Like they, you know, they're actually listening to the podcast. They're kind of invested in it. Otherwise, why would they be tweeting about it or writing us? Right. So I, I appreciate that. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, and I keep saying thank you for listening and that's not me being glib or no, facetious yeah. or phony. Like legitimately, if you listen to an episode from beginning to end and you're writing me to let me know, Hey, I listened to your show from beginning to end and I fucking hated it. Still, thank you for spending that hour with me. Like, thank you. Yeah, this is our first podcast, and this is all just very thrilling. It's like, wow, people are listening to us. That's yeah. that's amazing. I mean, it's it's great. So, but at the same 
same same side, you know, or on the other hand, I, I do think we have something of value. So I'm glad it's getting out there and it's getting recognized because I think we're telling people's stories and we're talking about things that have largely been forgotten that are very meaningful and help shape, help shape people's lives and help shape the media that we consume today. And so I'm glad it's getting out there. Another reason that we run a lot of the negative feedback is inspired in part by Stan Lee, uh, one of the co-creators of Marvel Comics. Uh, one of the things that he did in the letters section that ran at the back of his paper was he sort of broke the industry norms by running negative and sometimes even uh, rude or hateful letters that people sent. And I think one of the reasons he did that is because it made his letters section more lively. It made people feel like they were being listened to, even when they said things that weren't always nice to hear. But I think beyond all of that, it just made it more authentic. And so that is uh, another aspect that I tried to emulate. All of which brings us to our special guest, Abraham Reisman, he is an author who wrote the book True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. And I reached out to him for a couple of reasons. One, I really just enjoyed his book. Uh, it was a great biography. And as I was attempting to create a biography about another character in nerd culture, just reading how well researched his book was uh, really inspired me to just keep digging. Uh, but it's also just a really good book. I bought it on audiobook first, and I enjoyed listening to it so much that I bought the hardcover, and then I read that. And now he's released a paperback edition that includes new content, so there's a chance that I might actually own the audiobook, the hardcover, and then the paperback uh, going triple dip on uh, this book of his because it really is that good. But uh, I brought him on the show, one, to talk about his book. Uh, the other reason, though, is to talk about a collaboration between Harry Knowles and Stan Lee. In our last episode, we explored Harry Knowles' failed attempts to produce media outside of his website. This included his book, Ain't It Cool, which he co-wrote with two authors. Uh, this included his Comedy Central pilot, which never made it to series. And then it also included a series of films that uh, he tried to produce in Hollywood with Revolution Studios and Paramount, none of which made their way to the big screen. All that said, in 2011, Harry Knowles did produce one film, and I'll, I'll use produce in air quotes. You can't see them because I'm on a podcast, but he did produce one film that did make it to the big screen, and uh, this film was called Comic-Con, Episode 4, A Fan's Hope, and uh, it's a documentary about the San Diego Comic-Con. So Abraham and I talked a lot about that and just Comic-Con culture in general, and then uh, when I realized that his next book was going to be about professional wrestling... Uh, the North Carolinian in me wanted to talk to him about that because professional wrestling plays such a huge role in the history of my state. And uh, I used to be a fan uh, when I was a kid. So it was great to talk about that as well. And uh, it sounds like that book's going to be, honestly, even better than a Stan Lee book, which is already a great book. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that as well. So let's go ahead and jump into this interview and uh, see what Abraham has to say. So here on the show today, we have Abraham Reisman. Uh, he is here to take part in what I'll call a crossover. We're both uh, comic book fans, and uh, this is something fairly common, fairly special, I think, uh, in the world of comics. But uh, 
The reason I say this is a crossover is because Abraham, uh, you wrote True Believer, the rise and fall of Stan Lee. And uh, for my first season of my podcast download, um, we're calling this the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Annette Cool News. And mm. first, I just will say that you wrote a fantastic book. Thank you. I, I titled my season uh, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles before I heard of your book or uh, read it. But man, when I really read it, it was just the right call for my furnace. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, why is that? You, you wrote a book about someone who it seemed, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is an assumption that's completely false, but it seemed like they were a hero of yours from your childhood. No, you're wrong. I'm wrong. 100% oh, wrong. I had no social relationship with Stan Lee whatsoever. That's what made this book possible. Um, everyone else who's written a biography, not everyone else, I shouldn't say that. A lot of biographies have been written by fans of Stan. And I have no personal beef with anyone being a fan of Stan, but I did not ever have any kind of fandom relationship with him specifically. I loved Marvel. I was obsessed with Marvel, but I started reading Marvel in, I started reading Marvel comics and getting like really specifically geeky about it as opposed to just watching the cartoons and what, when they were on circa, you know, 97 or so. And that's right around when Stan's getting transitioned out of um, Marvel to go work at, you know, this, you know, post Marvel company that we can get into later. Um, so Stan was no longer as much of a centerpiece. The new person in charge of Marvel at the time, Ike Perlmutter, um, by all accounts, didn't particularly care for Stan and didn't understand why Stan was still on the payroll or why they were still listing things that way. But um, so Stan was not as much of a forefront figure for Marvel heads when I was starting to really get reeled in um, as it had been. Now, other people still got into Stan Lee, you know, from my generation. But for whatever reason, for me, it was not as uh, upfront. And by the time the movies were coming out, you know, and his cameos were happening. I was certainly very aware of Stanley and I was excited to see him, but I didn't really have any kind of like emotional relationship with him. It was, it was, you know, they want, Marvel wants Stan and the brand of Marvel to kind of be coterminous to a certain extent. You want to have like that face of the company, but I guess I just loved the company so much or the characters at least that I didn't really need a face of the company in human form to really like have that love feeling toward. Yeah, I think comics are a, an incredibly collaborative media, medium and to give sure. anyone one credit for everything that happens, especially, you know, there's people who give credit to Stan for characters who created decades after yeah. he stopped writing. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what I really appreciated about your book is that um, I've read, I would like to think that I've probably read every biography of Stan Lee. Mm -hmm. And I feel like your biography peels, I think, the most layers from the onion and I think reveals core truths Thank you. about this character. And I'll tell you, you know, when Stan passed away, um, the same thing that happened when a lot of people passed away, uh, people began to sort of retcon his existence mm. and uh, what it meant. And he was infallible in a lot of people's minds. And I remember the day that he died, I, I shared a memory on Facebook that made some people upset because I went to see him at a convention. Mm -hmm. I paid a hundred dollars to get him to sign. I have a, a daredevil sketchbook. Daredevil's my favorite superhero. Mm -hmm. And um, I was waiting in line and there just seemed to be a lot of chicanery. Like yeah. the line would be open. The line would be closed. You'd have to wait in line four hours. I'm like, this is bullshit. Yeah. So I walked up to the guy at the line is like, look, um, I don't know if I can get my hundred dollars back, but 
I just don't want to see Stan anymore. Yeah. And this guy stops me. He's kind of like this big bruiser guy. And he's like, look, look, look. Okay. He's just needing a break, but I'll get him to sign your thing right now. So he pulls this curtain back. Yeah. And I see this tiny shriveled guy just doubled over in a chair. And I realized that's Stan Lee. And it was sad. I wasn't happy to see this. And I don't know who could be, but everyone seemed like they were happy to see him. And I just saw a different side that, that let me know that maybe he's not here entirely because he wants to be. Yeah. You're, you're wise. And very few people saw through that. Um, It's, you know, it's almost too on the nose that there was an actual curtain getting pulled, (laughs) pulled away, but you know, very few people saw behind that curtain and the people who did see behind that curtain, very few of them chose to actually embrace what they saw as truth instead of just denying it. I mean, you know, there, there's, when, when the book was first um, starting to get marketed, it wasn't out. It was still months from being out. And actually the book ended up getting delayed because of COVID. So it was a way before the book came out. I was already starting to get complaints from people who thought I was trying to cancel Stan because the title of the book was The Rise and Fall of Stanley. And people would get into the comments on like the Facebook page I built for it or, or whatever. They'd tweet at me and they'd say, you know, how dare you call it that? He never fell. And what's interesting to me about that is always like the people who are saying that are the self-professed Stan superfans, right? The Stan stands. The Stan stands, if you will. Stan's horrible last year and a half of life was extremely well publicized. Like it was all over the tabloids and there was nowhere, you have no excuse if you, sure you might have an excuse not to know it if you're just a lay person, but if you're a Stan Stan, you'd think that this, that you'd know that the last year and a half of Stan's life was miserable. Um, And yet these people were either unaware of that or had already blocked it out of their minds. So their idea was they kept saying he didn't fall. He died at the top of his game. Marvel was more successful than it had ever been. He must've been rich. And that's not how it worked. (laughs) You know, I shouldn't laugh. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's it's such a, a gap between vision and reality when it comes to Stan. And I'm, it's very interesting that you had that experience. I mean, I can't, did you say, did you get the, the money back or you got the autograph? I mean, how did it work? This bruiser guy, he grabs my book. My guess is it was Max Anderson, but when was this, you said? This was in, I want to say 2000, 2015. Yeah. That's likely Max Anderson, who was his road manager. And he just gives him the book and he doesn't even look at my book. He just sort of yeah signs it. And he, he just looks tired, exhausted, not anywhere a person of his age needs to be, you know, like just Mm -hmm. sitting on a convention floor full of grubby, unwashed people. I know, but that was his life at that point. And he needed the liquid cash was the thing. So conventions, I mean, I know we're here to talk about a Comic-Con documentary and by the time Stan, by the time the documentary we're going to be talking about came out, Stan was already very much reliant on, on Comic-Cons as one of his main sources of income. Because he actually was not getting paid virtually anything. He was getting paid scale for his cameo appearances in the Marvel movies. And scale means if you're showing up for like three seconds, it's basically just an honorarium. 
Um, he was listed as an executive producer in all those movies, but he was not. That was, again, an honorary title. He had no ownership of them. He was not making any money off of them. Um, so, and of course, as, well, I mean, I shouldn't say of course, in the comics world, people know this, but outside people don't necessarily. Stan didn't own the IP that he claimed to have created. Now there's a whole separate question of whether he created these characters at all, but even if we, even if we assume he did, he didn't own any of them. So he needed liquid cash and that came in the form of doing these convention appearances. He'd done cons going back to, you know, 60s, 70s. Or, or, you know, 70s really is when it, it begins with him. Um, but he'd been doing cons a while before he encountered Max Anderson, who the, the circumstances of them meeting are a little odd and vague. Um, it's, it's unfortunately a little unclear exactly what happened, but it appears that Max Anderson was working at San Diego Comic-Con. And at some point in the 2000s, he and Stan met. He was like working security there, if I recall correctly. I may be getting that wrong, but he was working at Comic-Con they encountered each other and somehow a chain of events led to Max Anderson being his quote unquote road manager, which was kind of a nebulous title. But the main thing it involved was he was the guy who arranged Stan's con appearances and he got paid in cash. And those two things were all Stan needed um, because Stan needed the money. Not only was he supporting himself, but he had his wife and his daughter who were both profligate spenders um, by all accounts and by Stan's own account, by anyone you meet, they will tell you, Joan and JC spent a lot of money. Um, and so he needed to do stuff like this. I have a I have a story about that too, but really quick, let's just contextualize. Yeah, so the reason I guess this is a crossover is that Stanley and Harry Knowles, they collaborated. I'm gonna put collaborate in quotations. Yeah, right. But very loose yeah. term with each other on the documentary titled Comic Con, episode four, A Fan's Hope. Um the movie was produced for $1.5 million. It grossed $35,000 um, theatrically, which isn't great, but um, great. it's a collaboration between, uh, I would say, you know, in 2011, four scions of geek culture. You had Stanley, you had Harry Knowles, you had Joss Whedon, and I guess I wouldn't say he's necessarily a geek, but Morgan Spurlock, um, at least a bit of a carnival pop yeah, documentary. in that realm. I mean, I've met yeah. Morgan a couple of times. He's more of a geek than he lets on. So, yeah, but. So, that you know, they worked together on this documentary. And to me, this documentary is sort of like can, that can book. Just, the like, I let my cat in. It's getting dark. Sure. He, I, he's, he's been meowing. I'm just going to yep. let him in. And then yep. I'll... It's all good. I got a cat, too. I understand. He stayed out too late last night because I forgot to bring him in. Anyway, yes, you were saying, so these, these geek figures are coming together. Yeah, you know, and they produced this movie. Let me recontextualize. Yeah, please. So this movie is kind of like uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, it reminds me of that. So you have this Jode family. They've been displaced from their home due to ecological damage. And they get this flyer telling them to go to California where they'll find work, these great jobs. And the catch is that these jobs are terrible. They're a ruse for exploitation from farmers and companies offering right. low paying jobs. And I feel like this documentary is very disingenuous in that way where mm -hmm. it's sort of propping this Comic-Con culture yeah. up and underneath it's glossy veneer. I don't think it's entirely a positive place. No, are you kidding me? It's a corporate entity. I mean, there are no moral corporate entities. <laughs> you can't, there's no, this is what drives me nuts about what geekdom has turned into. And maybe this is what, 
it had been for longer than I'd like to admit, but it's really just become brand worship. And Comic-Con is the annual pilgrimage site for all the brands, you know? You come and you pay your respect to the brands that have given you so much. And they in return, let you have some free swag or you get to be the first, you get to be in the room when somebody says a piece of information. Like that's somehow, now I understand these are powerful things. I have felt the excitement of these things, but I now resent that I have felt the excitement of those things, if you know what I mean. My buttons Absolutely. have pushed. These are very, very smart, or at least lucky, um, people and institutions insofar as they have figured out how to press people's brain buttons. And it's, you know, you look at Comic-Con, I go to Comic-Con and Comic-Con has been very important for my career. I'm not going to just like, say Comic-Con is, is an unalloyed evil as a concept, Lord no. But like, it's it's a money-making entity. It's not something that represents, I mean, I hate that hope is in the name of that movie, you know? Like, there's nothing hopeful about Comic-Con. Comic-Con is a vision of just sort of where we're at. There's nothing about Comic-Con that makes you go like, wow, I wish world could, the world could be more like San Diego Comic-Con. Wouldn't it be great if more of the world was like this? But there are people who want that, I guess, because that's what the world looks like now. You know, and I think that's sadly the truth, you know. Yeah, I guess. You look at the, there's sort of these smaller stories, the sort of vignettes told within the documentary, uh, one of which focuses on these two aspiring artists who are trying to break into the world of, of comic book creators. And which is impossible. Even that. And no one should ever try it. <laughs> In the current conditions, you know, I mean, it's, but anyway, go on. Yes. It's a terrible job. It's a terrible job. You can't make it a living at it. You have to have some other, I'm sorry, I'm talking over you. Tell me, tell me what yeah. you're going to say. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, if you're, if you're working a job and working and creating comics on the side and you're trying right. to get a job from these major publishers, you're better off just keeping your day job. Just keep the day job. Yeah, I know. Very. I, yes. Anyway, go on. What were you going to say? Yes. Oh, I mean, and that was entirely it. You know, I just felt like that, you know, they're sort of focusing on this hope and this chance that these people can break into an industry that's not It's great. not even worth breaking into. Like you talked right now, there's such an interesting post-pandemic maybe level of not giving a shitness in comics, Twitter at least, when I sort of see people talking about the industry there, there's a real sense of like, why are we still doing it like this? Like why on earth, especially I look at it and start to have that feeling because when we're talking about the comic book industry, quote unquote, we should be very specific about what we're talking about because we're talking about the superhero comic book industry for the most part. Comic most books part. are not, not, exact, not entirely, but we're talking about San Diego Comic-Con where the comics they're talking about there, nine times out of 10 are going to either be superhero or adjacent to the big, the big corporate brands, et cetera. Um, what I'm getting at is comics are doing fine, but it's just most of the comics that are actually selling and that are having a huge impact are by Raina Telgemeier. You know, the comics, they're, they're like, you know, they're kids comics and comics for young people and comics for young adults. And none of them are about superheroes. Like all the big two are playing catch up on that stuff. But like you go to, you go to a Comic-Con and, you know, I remember I was at New York Comic-Con, which is the second biggest one. Um, a couple of years ago, and I was talking to somebody very high up at DC Comics. And I said, um, you were just, you know, talking. And she said, uh, uh, you know, what are you planning to do? What are you moderating here? And I said, well, I'm moderating a panel with Raina Telgemeier. This person had never heard the name before. Now, here's wow. the thing. Yeah, just it would ne didn't register at all. 
And this is DC, man. Like, come on, get with the program. Reina is the biggest selling, Reina is the Elvis of comics right now. <laughs> I'm getting a for, feel, but yeah. For listeners who are unfamiliar with Reina Telgemeier. Yes, um, I'm sorry. I should have done the intro. Yeah. No, it's okay. She writes a series of YA um, graphic novels, really. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. And Smile is the most famous one, but she's done a bunch of them. Yeah. She uh, she recently did the a few uh, Babysitter's Club. She did Basie Visitors Club. She did uh, Guts, Drama, Ghosts, uh, most recently, uh, Share Your Smile, which I think is very interesting because her most recent book, Share Your Smile, or second most recent, is not really a graphic novel. It's a workbook for how to make your own comics, which is genius. What I always tell people is if, if there is a civilization uh, in 50 years, Share Your Smile is very likely going to be the how to draw comics the Marvel way of, this, of the Zoomer generation. We're like, you can have this whole generation of kids who grew up loving the comics of Reina. And then as soon as Reina said, hey, here's how you can make your own comics, they decided to start making their own comics. Um, similarly to how Marvel and Stan very ingeniously realized after a certain point that you have this whole generation of people who've grown up trying to draw like Jack Kirby, Stan's most famous collaborator, who was by, by the time they put out the book, How to Draw Comics the Marble Way, Kirby had been very much marginalized and he's not even really mentioned in the book hardly. But like, it's a genius move to just say, you like the media that you've been reading, here's how you can create your own. It's a, it's a wonderful pro-social thing. And I, I love it, but I just wish there was a better road at the end. There was more of a pot of gold at the end for people who are making sort of direct market superhero comics right now you know right well i mean as big of as big of a deal as comic-con is the real clincher if you really want to succeed as a creator of comics is uh the scholastic book fair the scholastic book fair you're completely right that is exactly it i'm constantly telling people this being in previews magazine the thing that the direct market uses to figure out what comics to order that's all well and good but if you're not showing up at the scholastic book fair where all the kids who are rabid for comics are going to go oh hey here's a new comic i'll read literally anything that is a comic then <laughs> you're really missing out you know yeah the the 20 dollar baller at the uh at the book fair exactly the 20 dollars they're gonna get some posters some stickers there you go and a couple of books Yeah, a yeah. couple of books that's it but anyway, um, so anyway, go on. We're, we're, I, I keep taking us down these uh, roles, you ranting about how much I hate the industry, but you know. That's no, no, I, I really appreciate it. So having watched the documentary, you know, one of the things that they really gloss over is the diminished presence of actual comics. Yes. Comic books in an event called Comic-Con. Um, you have this comic sailor who owns Smile High Comics. Yeah. He's one of the big... When I was a kid, you know, you would see little ads for Baja exactly. Comics. My Life Comics, you'd be like, they have every comic. And this was when it was really hard to find old comics. So you'd be like, this is the treasure trove. Like, I could read the entire history of Marvel if I had the money, you know? It, they had an 800 number, so I would call them and say, do you have this? Like, yes, we have this. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd hang up my phone. And then I'd call them again, like, later, like, do you have this? Yes, I have this. And then I'd just hang up my phone. <laughs> I love like. That. 11 years old, you know, it was just before yeah, the internet, yeah. you call the guy at Mile High Comics and bug the shit out of him. Yeah. But um, I, I, for Mile High, for me, it was, I just kept making, my mom said, okay, we can order a bunch from there, but it was only, she'd set some number. It was like, you could order like 10 back issues or something. I don't know what the number was. And I don't think I ever actually ended up ordering because I spent months just agonizing over which my 10 were going to be, you know, because it was just a sea of options. And then that was one of the great, I used to tell people, the high point of my life 
up until I had actual high points in my life. But the high point in my life as of when I was like 14 was going to Comic-Con for the first time, not San Diego, going to a Comic-Con, going to Wizard World in Chicago. And um, it was a stunning experience. Like I'd never been in a communal event like that. I'd, ne I, I'd felt so alone and isolated, which in retrospect is kind of silly because there were other comic book readers in my town. I, I, somebody needs to do like a real anthropological deep dive on why all of us geeks who loved Marvel and Star Wars somehow felt like we were outsiders during this, like cultural outsiders. We may ourselves have been outsiders socially, but like Star Wars and Marvel were not actually that far removed from the mainstream of culture. They were just far off. And well, I don't know, make a counter argument. I, I'm, I, I'm curious. Well, I think that before the internet and before the explosion, before yeah. Dark Knight, Iron Man, 2008, yeah. um, there was something that we kind of carried with a little bit of shame. You it know? was. So, and then I wasn't ashamed and now I'm ashamed again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you would make fun of people, but then you'd catch someone who didn't care that you made fun of these things. Yeah. And they start telling you about what's been happening recently. And you'd be like, oh shit, really? Is that what Iron Man's doing right now? Oh my God. Holy it's crap. It's joyful. It's a, I look, I loved going to Comic-Con. I met Stan. That's, I have the photo in the book. The one time I was ever face-to-face -face with Stan Lee was when I was about 13. I think it was my first Comic-Con. It was either my first or second. It was Wizard World in Rosemont, Illinois, probably 1998. And I waited in line for like 15 minutes. <laughs> like it's the complete wow. opposite of your experience. Because in 1998, Marvel's bankrupt. The last superhero movie that anybody watched was, um, you know, that, that anybody watched and thought was good came out like 15 years ago, uh, or not quite that much, but you know, it, it like Batman and Robin was what was coming out. And the, the David Hasselhoff, you know, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. made for TV movie was the big new Marvel thing that was happening. So of course you could wait 15 minutes to talk to Stan Lee. He was not the celebrity that he later became. Like he was iconic within comics, but comics was not doing so great and the mainstream had not caught up to it yet. So like that stuff was great. I loved being there. I'm sure if I went back and looked on it now, I'd think it was all, you know, candy coated and corporate and everything, but it was nothing compared to how much the cons would, what the cons would turn into, you know, where it suddenly became hegemonic. Like at least when I was going to those cons as a kid, even though it was me, you know, feeding the brand, it was not a brand that owned everything. It still felt very counterculture, countercultural. It felt somewhat countercultural, yes. And then eventually it just became this hegemonic entity. And I I don't know. It's it's harder to it's harder for me to understand the mentality that a lot of people have about feeling so tribal regarding Marvel now, because Marvel belongs to everybody for better or worse. Like Marvel yeah. really does belong to the entire world now. You don't own it. Any Marvel fan who thinks I am the defense, I'm the I'm the KOF, you know, I'm the keeper of the flame. I'm the one who's going to keep this thing going. They don't need you anymore. And people yeah. really don't know what to do with the fact that they're not really needed anymore as the loyal soldiers of the grind because these things are these movies are just default. Like everybody just sees them. Even American fans don't matter. Like as long as it does well, you know, throughout the globe, it doesn't, if you have a domestic slight, I mean, the Eternals is probably going to be fine. International audiences will maybe love the Eternals. I don't know. But like, we, I'm sorry, I'm ranting again. Yeah, oh God, we haven't even talked about Knowles. Oh my God. What so, an influential figure. What a complicated and influential figure. You worked in, you've worked in journalism. Yeah, and yeah. Since what I wanted to know was, 
what's your perspective on uh, the state of journalism? Because I feel like on the state of journalism, bad. It is bad. <laughs> it is very, very, very bad. I feel like what hap- what Harry Knowles and Any Cool News sort of helped to achieve within cinema culture and movie culture and movie reviewing culture was sort of an early predictor for what was going to happen to the entire news culture on mass. Like you had you had the film critics being laid off from their papers at the yep. same time that these guys were blowing up. Yep. And and you know they sort of filled in the gap, but they didn't do it the same way. No, and, and they filled in the I mean look, old there's this real bad tendency among journalists to romanticize that like there's this eternal golden past of journalism. Basically journalism had a few good decades where like along with the rest of America, everything was so flush that you could afford to be somewhat ethical and like have real robust stuff. Um, So now we're just sort of getting back into the realm from which journalism has often dwelled, which is, you know, what we now would call clickbait. And Harry and AICN were really at the forefront of the modern conception of what we now call clickbait. Everything was a take, everything was premature speculation. Everything was, how do I galvanize people into a campaign as opposed to just giving them information? It was uh, tribal. It was, if you're reading this, you're good. You are right. You, the reader, are part of a good community that is righteous and will change the world. These people felt like they changed, I mean, and they did. They, they changed Hollywood very quickly. Like I remember interviewing Lauren Schuler Donner, the producer of the X-Men films. Um, in, uh, God, I was talking about in 2016. And she was remembering when they were about to put out X-Men 1, maybe you already know this anecdote, but as they were about to put out X-Men 1, she told me there was only one review that mattered to them and that was AICN's. Not because they liked Harry or anything. It's not because they respected Harry's opinion, but by 2000, in the short gap between like 97, when he gets Joel Schumacher fired from the Batman movies and 2000, when X-Men comes out and is this huge surprise mega hit, Harry Knowles becomes a power broker to the point where Lauren Schulder Donner, like I say, is saying there was only one review that mattered to us, which was, does Harry like it? Because if Harry likes it, he'll tell his legions of dedicated followers who think that they're in some glorious holy war um, that they should all go see it. Because you're, I mean, you're doing this piece, you know this. You look at back at old Harry columns from AICN and nine times out of 10, the best is the movie reviews where he's like, and in conclusion, all of you, even if you don't like this movie, go see this movie because I'm telling you to, because it will affect the marketplace in a way that will be good for the greater cause. And, and that's such a terrible way to run a media organization. It's awful. Well, you know, because essentially what they were doing was they're trying to coax the studio out of the car, like a yeah. Out from underneath the car like a cat they're bringing out this saucer <laughs> milk which is all of us yeah. the readers of the site and saying come on they'll like they'll like it if you do more yeah. comics make it more comic book mm-hmm. like have a continuity create a cinematic universe <sighs> and then they did it and then they fucking did it it's it's it was this i mean the two things about harry that i've done any kind of research into because i'm obviously i was growing up as a millennial on the internet millennial geek on the internet i read a lot of stuff by him But in terms of like research, you know, I haven't, I've always wanted to do more and I'm glad you're doing this because I do think he's an underappreciatedly important figure and obviously a deeply problematic one for a million reasons. 
Um, but you cannot, you, you are whitewashing history if you deny that he, for better and very much for worse, um, didn't have an app impact, you know, if, or I can't remember, I think I did too many negatives in that sentence, but no, I think you, you got it right. Accept that you have to accept that Harry Knowles, for all of his Harry Knowles-ness, did actually change Hollywood. Not exactly single-handedly, but, you know, more than a single person usually is able to, especially somebody who's like outside the system the way he was. Well, you know, and I, I think what was sad, I think, about losing newspaper film critics and replacing yeah. them with the online set yeah. is that the the newspaper people were great at promoting independent films, foreign films that weren't horror movies. And, um, sure. and now, lost that. no, no, we don't have that. I mean, there's so many factors that play into why Hollywood has crashed and why geekdom has turned into a horrific dark vision of itself. Um, but, you know, sometimes it does come down to individual actors in terms of um, individual voices, maybe I should say. Actors isn't even the right word. Online, everything's flattened down to voice, where it's like, if you have a voice that is persuasive and that people want to keep coming back to, whether it's a written voice or a voice on TikTok or a voice on a podcast or whatever, People aren't really looking for, it comes back to the thing I was saying about Stan, you know, people are not actually looking for the truth. They're looking for good vibes. All people want right now is good vibes. And so that's why people, that's why a lot of people rejected my book. And I get it. I get it. It's fine. I want good vibes too. But there are people who really went, my, I like Stan Lee because he makes me feel good. And any information about Stan Lee that makes me feel bad I will reject because I don't want the Stan Lee portion of my brain to be yet another horrible thing in this world that makes me feel bad, which makes sense. I get it, but it leads to some really effed up social consequences. Well, I think that your book did this one great thing too, because, you know, growing up loving comic books, loving Marvel, you know, worshiping Stan as a kid, just because yeah. he created no, sure, Spider-Man. Again, I want to I emphasize, I don't, bl- it makes all the sense in the world. Didn't work with me, but it happened with a lot. Well, there's a turn that happens as you get a little older and you start hanging out more with the guy that runs yeah, the comic book shop, smoking shop, cigarettes. you, yeah, well, you see that guy way ripped, he said he was. Ripped everyone off. He ripped off this guy named Jack Kirby. And your book's not entirely Camp Kirby either. Like you you tell the truth about him as well. No, I'm not. I, you, know what was, you know what was really interesting? You know what was really interesting was a few weeks ago when... Um, People found out about, I actually had not even known about this. It's a very minor chapter in Kirbyana, um, uh, but Kirby wrote a novel, wrote a draft of a novel called The Horde, H-O-R-D-E. Um, and it was basically lost. But then this, uh, oh my God, was it the guy who runs My Light Comics? I think it might've been. All of a sudden I'm forgetting who it was, but one of the like big deal fans who's really made it in the geekdom world um, bought, obtained a copy of the manuscript of the novel and tweeted out or Facebook posted out a photo of the first page and the first page of Kirby's novel it says you know the horde a novel by Jack Kirby and then it has this epigraph and the epigraph is I believe a quote from I want to say Nostradamus it was some prophecy and it was the section of the prophecy talking about how like there will be a, a wave of beasts from the orient man beasts from the orient coming from, and like all of a sudden you look at it and you go uh-oh and that led people to do a little bit of digging and find that there had been a couple of interviews where people had talked about talking to Kirby and Kirby had told them what the plot of the Horde was and they were recounting it. 
and you don't it's pretty bad it's really racist it's absurdly racist it's so just anti anti-asian racism it's anti-chinese anti-chinese okay. it's it's incredible i mean by all accounts i haven't read the the manuscript because basically nobody has um but just the basic description of it is you know chinese warlord develops uh, decides to take over the world and the devious Chinese build uh, tunnels under the earth and explode out of the earth throughout Europe and the rest of the world and try to conquer everything. Um, and, you know, the, I'm not saying this to say like, you know, Jack Kirby is, you know, go to hell. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I, I knew there's, there's always a danger when you're writing about Stan or writing about Marvel to over, um, over sanctify Jack Kirby. Um, Jack Kirby was a man too just as much as Stan. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who know things about Jack Kirby that we would all find deeply unsettling, because guess what? That's true of every human being. And, you know, I, I so thank you for recognizing that, because I do not think the book is Camp Kirby. The book is, is Camp, I tried to figure out as much as I could, and here's the evidence, and you go forth. You know, I don't really have an argument on that thing, because I don't think we'll ever know. We will never know. Because they, they, they're, they're people. They're people. They're, this is what I'm getting. I've, I've said this a million times, but I'll say it again in this context because it, it's relevant. This is a book about ambiguity, both factual ambiguity and moral ambiguity. My book, um, True Believer, is very much about a guy who there are big things where we can't prove one way or the other whether they happened. And then there are big questions that are even harder to answer, which is, was he a good person or not? And the book is trying to make you live with that ambiguity because unfortunately there are no actual answers to either of those questions. Like you can spend your the rest of your life trying to find them and pursuing the answers can be very fruitful, but you're never gonna get there. And some people have just not accepted that and decided that they've already gotten there and they know Jack Kirby was the true genius and all else is just commentary, you know? In telling the story about Stan Lee, you know, were there ever any people that you considered at one point in your life to be like heroes or people that you looked up to who, you know, turned on you, who were mad at you because of this book? Um, not really, uh, not for this book. I will say that it's, it, it's, it was interesting. Roy Thomas, Stan's protege. And that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. You yeah. Well, Roy was never like a hero of mine, but I've, I've interviewed Roy on a number of occasions and he's always been perfectly nice to me. And uh, he gave me a lot of interesting information. One of the great paradoxes about Roy is if you were to read the full transcript of my interview with him, you'd see a guy who was deeply frustrated with Stan, but who loved him very much, but was deeply frustrated with him. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of complaints in there. And when you look at what Roy said about my book after it came out, you know, I can't remember the exact way he phrased it, but he basically said like 95% of the book he has no issue with, which is really something because it's not like 5% of the book is all that's critical of Stan. You know, I think Roy, I really appreciated that Roy like took the time to take down the book. I disagree with his assessments, but it actually does mean a lot that he took the time to engage with the text and to, to confirm that I didn't really get anything wrong factually. It's just sort of, he has a different interpretation of events and an interpret, different interpretation of a few key documents that I see very differently from how he sees them. Yeah, and, and I think that's fair. And it sounds like you have a good attitude about it, honestly. So oh, thanks. I mean, I, yeah, I don't have any ill will towards Roy. I, 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 I would welcome a conversation with him. But I, I just, it's, it's there. To answer your question, there weren't really any moments, I'm lucky to say, 
of people who I really adored um, saying, screw this book. That did not happen. James Gunn, who I don't have any particular relationship with, um, did tweet out Roy's article to sort of cast aspersion on my book. Um, but I loved the Suicide Squad, so I'm going to fight um, uh, fight fear with love and 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 <laughs> and, and tell Fair. him that I'm my my door is open if he wants to have a conversation about Stan Lee someday. Yeah. So this recent uh, wave of lawsuits by comics creators. Yeah. Fascinating. I will tell you, I don't have any insider perspective on that because I'm very much in wrestling world right now. My next book that I'm working on right now is a biography of Vince McMahon, uh, the, the professional wrestling impresario of World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, so I haven't been deep sourced in the comics world in the past year or so, just because I've had to be in this other universe. But watching that just from a perspective of a news consumer and some, uh, you know, a relatively informed news consumer. But there was, there's one thing that your book hit on is that someone owns the rights to Stan Lee and everything that he yeah, created. Someone, to, his name, to his name, likeness, all of that stuff. Yeah. And, and so technically they could try to pull a claim over a part of these characters. It could be, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's such a, a cluster because the comics industry was so rapaciously and um, flimsily run in the axial years of the 40s through the 60s. There was just no professional conduct in terms of like laying out specificities of what work for hire considered, uh, you know, constituted uh, or, you know, good HR, none of that. That was not what we were doing, but the comics industry was doing back then. And we all sort of suffer the consequences from that now, you know, the legacy of that. Well, you know, you, you've talked about this on social media and it's certainly something that's made me feel a little uneasy. Um, the way that these families of these creators who died penniless and broke yeah. are coming up and saying, hey, we would like a slice of the Marvel billions here yeah. uh, for these characters that our dead relatives created. And people are responding with anger towards these families of oh, these creators. Oh, so weird. I mean, I'm sure some of these families are total jerks. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of the way overall societal justice should work, I would argue that even if you are a greedy jerk from some from you know some creator's family, you deserve the money that can, or at least you know the estate deserves the money because some some portion of money that comes from the revenues generated by the sweat of that person's brow. It it just it, it's so obvious. It's such a small thing, and yet it, we've completely lost the plot on it to the point where yeah you have fans uh of the mcu or whatever watching mark toberoff's lawsuit with all these comics creators and their families and going like what is with these greedy children you know like uh steve ditko's relatives they just want to get the money yeah they want to get the money who cares that's what capitalism is like you're supposed to get remunerated for the work you do yeah, it, it, it defies it defies belief the degree to which people will just cheerlead for a major multi bajillion dollar corporation that makes these yeah these people worked until they died and I'm died. sure it's not unreasonable to think that they would want their kids to be taken care of. Of course, they would want their kids to be taken care of. Most of the time, especially for the older generations, that's why they got into comics. They didn't even like comics. They got into comics because it was a gig that they could use to feed their families and. 
you know, I mean, that was the thing about Jack, Jack Kirby. He, you know, he saw more in comics, more potential in comics than a lot of other people in superhero comics. But he still was not, you know, he was mainly doing it by the end just because he needed to support his family. He needed to put food on the table. I mean, that's why he stayed at Marvel long after he was very dissatisfied there. He couldn't go to DC because of a legal problem. So he had to just keep working at Marvel in order to, you know, provide for his family. And yeah, so why wouldn't, why wouldn't, I mean, I don't know the specifics of all the, the case. I'm not talking about the case specifically. I'm saying in general, if you create something, if you unambiguously create something or at least have a huge role in creating it, and then that thing makes a lot of money, unless you went out of your way to say, hey, I am making a big choice here. I don't want to make money off of this creation that I made. Unless you really opt out of making money off of your creation, society and the economy should repay you for your creation. <laughs> I, I think the greatest point is this. You know, you talked about the Suicide Squad film. There's a lot of licensed music in all of James Gunn's movies. Oh. He's a big fan of the needle drop. Yeah, every one of those needle drops, the people who Artists produce that music, they're getting checks. Maybe not checks. huge checks, but they're getting checks. Whereas, I, I, yeah. greater than the comic creators, greater than the sure. comic creators, most likely. Yeah, I know the DC is a little bit better because some they they for a while had this sort of, you know, royalty sharing agreement, but it's not ownership. It's it's not ownership. You know, it's royalty sharing. You the, there's no way in which the IP belongs to these creators really. So. For the most part, but we'll end here. Leaving leaving the the shady world of comics to yeah. the much greener and far more fair world of professional wrestling. Fair wrestling. Um, you're working on a book about a, a fellow North Carolinian. I'm from North Carolina. Uh, I was just about to say the North Carolinian connection. That's that's one um, of my. I was I was I did a whole long week and a half long road trip to all of the rural areas and small towns where Vince lived when he was a child. So I was. I was in Moore County and uh, uh, just outside of EC. And it was, it was fascinating. I'd never been to North Carolina. It's a fascinating and very complicated state. <laughs> I would say that's fair. You know, we're, we're a purple state. Um, very much a purple state, yeah. And, you know, you would think that Vince McMahon, having done everything that he did, um, having employed as many North Carolinians as he has, that we would commemorate his existence in some meaningful way, whether it's a sign or, Something? No, nothing. We have we have no. Markers. My thoughts about that that I will keep my lips sealed about until the book is out. But there are, you're noticing something that is wise for you to notice. Very few notice how little there is an acknowledged connection between North Carolina and Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Um, and one reason for that is while he was living in North Carolina until the last few years of it, he was not Vincent Kennedy McMahon. He had a completely different name. So we'll get back to that when the book comes out. But to be continued. To be continued, uh, yes. You know, we're, we're actually a major state for wrestling though. Like Andre the Giant's ashes were scattered here. Huge state for wrestling. That's what's so fascinating. The Hardy Boys grew up like 25 minutes away, for, not even from, they grew up in Moore County. Like they're right near where Vince was born and spent the first few years of his life. I mean, obviously separated by many years, but like when I was visiting Moore County, people would be like, oh yeah, the Hardy Boys are from around here. Wait, Vince McMahon, he's from around here? I never even heard that, you know? It's, it's, I'll get into the reasons for that once the book comes out, but um, it's, uh, it's certainly a fascinating story, I would say. Well, why do you think wrestling is so connected to sort of the primordial soup of everything that really is America? 
That's a great question. And the whole book is sort of about that. I guess what I would say is without giving away too much of my thesis, are your listeners going to be familiar with the term kayfabe, I presume? Um, do I have to define kayfabe? I, it's hard to define is the trouble. It's one of those sort of like- words Give it a shot. Like, sure. So kayfabe in wrestling, it comes from an old sort of carny term. Um, there's no clear linguistic origin for it, but it roughly means illusion or like the fiction of wrestling. But once it's hard for me in a brief summary to talk about all the nuances of the term kayfabe. But once you start learning more about kayfabe, you basically get kayfabe pilled. And my goal with this book is to kayfabe pill people and make them see the world in terms of kayfabe because it exists so much outside of wrestling. And kayfabe is basically the agreed upon decision to suspend your disbelief. Um, and it sounds so, it's so much more complicated than that. But the point is America has always been a place like wrestling where you have kayfabe morality and very real violence. Like the moral valences of wrestling are made up. The good guys and the bad guys, that's it's, there's no good guys, there's no bad guys, there's just workers. But the violence, that's not made up. The, the, the damage that is done to these bodies, although of course you diminish the amount of violence, ideally, you know, and you, you play it safer than it looks like you're playing it, it's still a real physical toll. And America, that's the way it works here. We have these ethics that are completely made up and these good guys and bad guys that are the same guys. And the violence is very real. You know, you look at the consequences of political rhetoric or theology, and it's not dissimilar from what happens in professional wrestling, where you just have people continuing to suspend their disbelief in the face of something that's causing destruction. Now, I love wrestling. This is me coming from somebody saying, coming from somebody who loves wrestling and has fallen back in love with wrestling in a way I haven't since I was a teenager. But there is this problem of, you know, falling too far into the kayfabe mentality outside of wrestling and applying it in politics and applying it in business and applying it elsewhere. And that's what has happened in a lot of ways. So I'll say no more, but there, there's, 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 you're onto something. I don't think it's an accident that uh, Donald Trump did a, a, an extensive tenure in the world of wrestling. Of it's not an accident. They've, they've been friends since the eighties. This is well-documented. That's not even me like coming up with, you know, stunning new revelations. Vince and, and he have been friends for a very long time. So it's, it's, it's an interesting story. I, I, sh I sh really should stop talking about it. I, I, I yeah, yeah. I, I will, I will, I will keep the cats in their bags. Thank I, I you. can't I wait that, yeah. to see them. But um, really quick, if uh, people want to check out your work, is there a place where they can go? Sure. Yeah. Just go to my website, abrahamreisman.com. It's I before E. Um, but if you misspell it with the EI transposed, uh, I have that domain registered as well and it redirects the IE. So Abraham Reisman and, uh, dot com. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at Abraham Joseph. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, your, your upcoming book, uh, which me too. I have to actually write, I have to finish writing it. Say again. It's tentatively titled Ringmaster, correct? Ringmaster. We're, we're thinking about altering the subheading, but we're pretty dead set that the, the title is going to be Ringmaster, yes. And then um, for those who want to check out your previous book. Uh, yeah, True Believer. Yeah, true. well, go to abrahamreisman.com. I, I made it the biggest possible link right there on the front page, so you can't miss it. I encourage you to, and I encourage you to buy from not Amazon. I, uh, that's my, my good liberal thing to say. <laughs> Perfect.
Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, it was my pleasure. This was really great. All right, welcome back. Um, that was Abraham Reisman, the writer of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. The book is actually now available in paperback format, and he's added a bunch of new content. So, you know, I've already bought the audiobook. I've bought the hardcover. I'm probably going to now go out and buy the uh, this new paperback because he's added new content. I want to check it out. I really thought it was a great book, and it told a lot of truth. So, yeah. Well, Chris, I think that's it for us for uh, about a month. Uh, thank yeah. you for doing these comments section episodes with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. The one thing I'll say is that we are going to try to, I'm going to try to release some of our archived interviews um, as well as a few bonus interviews that I've just done recently. I don't want to say they have nothing to do with Harry Knowles, but you know, they're just sort of related to the culture he's in. And uh, I, we got some really good conversations lined up there. So. We'll see you guys at the end of April, and thank you so much. See you then. Bye, everyone.